0: For 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.
1: We are back inside the Hive with myself, Joe Hagan, Emily Jane Fox. What is going on, Emily? What's going on? It's
0: a great question, an age-old question. We're, We're here today because we have an amazing interview with John Lovett, who if you are listening to this podcast, odds are you are listening to one of his other two podcasts. He is a co-host of Pod Saves America. He is a host of Love It or Leave It. He is a founder of, of Crooked Media and a former Obama speechwriter. And we have a, an amazing talk about all things that are happening in the world right now, all of the wonderful things that Crooked is doing. Um, Love It is a personal friend of mine too, so we talk about Um, a very odd game that we are engaged in during the pandemic that is part of our daily routine that is so nerdy. When when we were describing it to our listeners, I realized how much of a loser I've become in quarantine. But the conversation (laughs) is very fun. I'm excited for you to hear it. What I'm thinking about today is after this episode, I believe that we – my math may be wrong – but I believe that we only have two more episodes before the election. Could it
1: be? I mean, you mentioned that to me um, before we started taping, and it kind of blew my mind. And I'm looking at the calendar, and it's actually true. There are only... a lot
0: I can count.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in math. You know, we're we're mere journalists, not expected to know anything about math, but uh, it's true. And two weeks to go, and. Where are we in just pure feeling of the numbers, feeling of the zeitgeist and the tone and the of in the arc of the news cycle? How are you feeling right at this moment?
0: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna save my pessimism or optimism for a little bit later. But <laughs> what I will say is that I I actually just can't believe that it's upon us. We have been anticipating this moment for four years, and we've been talking about this election for for so long, um, for so many seconds, minutes, hours, weeks, months now, and it's kind of surreal that it's here. It feels like um, what I would imagine when you and you guys were getting ready to have your beautiful girls, or uh, when you're waiting for your book to come out, or any kind of big life event that you have been looking forward to and dreaming about for so long, and it's finally dawning, that feeling of like, holy shit, it's actually here. We're at the holy shit, it's actually here moment. And that's kind of crazy. I can't imagine whatever day that we are able to wake up and know the results of this election, whether that's November 4th or December 4th or January 19th on the eve of the inauguration. I don't know when that's going to be. But whenever that morning is, it's crazy that it is as close as it is. And I'm just I'm really looking forward to a resolution.
1: Oh, man. I mean, just to uh, exhale would be a revelatory experience at this point. I mean, this week. um, There is a uh, Supreme Court nomination hearings are going on and dueling um, town halls between Trump and Biden on separate networks. And this is like a slow news week. Right. I mean, this feels <laughs> that's the that's the crazy thing. And I, in my mind, I think about like, um, you know, when you see, have a series of firecrackers that are all tied together and they just go pop, 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 pop. And you don't know if that is what the next that all the news cycles leading up to November 3rd could be like that. You know, we just don't even know it. But but I'm looking at this like Barisma story that, you know, the New York Post, Rudy Giuliani, Trump campaign kind of threw out there. And it's just pathetic. I mean, it's a pathetic kind of, um, they're just throwing things out of the kind of empty barrel that they have left here. Um, And so, but, or is there more, you know, or is it just going to be Trump kind of, uh, you know, like a swirling around in chaos and like a cat in a bag trying to figure out how he can reclaim anything. But, But the polling... You don't know whether to trust it. You look at it. Is this real? It's looking good, but nobody wants to rely on it because won't get fooled again. So that's where we are right now, this sense of like there is a there is optimism. I know you don't wanna get into that. I know you don't wanna I just
0: don't like being disappointed.
1: Nobody does. Nobody wants to I'd be rather
0: disappointed. just I'd rather just think the worst. Yeah, and well, then I think that's be pleasantly surprised or, that's or be right. realistic about
1: it. Right, you want to be vigilant. We're, we want to be vigilant and uh, not be disappointed. Right, but I think that optimism and is can be conjoined with vigilance, and you know you can go into this with a sense of hope. I'm, I I have to say, watching, uh, you know, we saw all these long lines in Georgia this week, and there were videos mm-hmm. and pictures of. Um, largely African American um, people in line waiting to vote, and on the one hand, this was infuriating, right? Like, how is it, and why is it that these machines break down now around the Atlantic, Atlanta area? Uh, you know, with um, you know people of color having to face this. But at the other hand, I was so I I saw the resolve there, the kind of the willingness to stand in line for eleven hours. And the sense of hope that they gave me, I was like, these people are heroes. They're heroes Truly. for for this moment in which we know it counts, and they believe it counts, and they're willing to do this for it. And if they're willing to do that to get their vote counted, that makes me feel like uh, there is some hope. There is something happening here.
0: It is the best of America. And if there's one thing I'm totally willing to be optimistic about is... People who are fulfilling patriotic duties and standing in long lines because they believe in this, whatever they believe in. I'm optimistic about, the, about democracy when I see those images. And I talk to Love It about uh, my parents live in the Philadelphia suburbs and uh, the all important Philadelphia suburbs. And um, I don't want to repeat the story, so I'll, I'll just tease it for you guys. But they saw something really, really interesting. On Tuesday, three weeks before the election day, so as I tease that, should we just get into the interview with with yeah, John let's, Lovett?
1: Let's dive in because, um, you know, I know he's going to um he's said he's got the data, he's got the the deep insight, and we want that. so let's dive in.
0: Let's do it. Well, this is the greatest treat ever to have my friend and voice of reason, John Lovett here. Hi, John. Hi, Emily. Can we just can we talk about the fact that we're friends IRL first? Mm-hmm. Just get it out of the way. I think that the sure. hallmark of our friendship, I think, is a I'm very I'm excited to find out what it is. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean it's it's pretty clear to me. We are on okay. I would say we're on a very active text chain that yep. started with a very novel competition. I'm really proud of us mm-hmm. for creating what we created. Um, we play the New York Times spelling bee, but we play it in an interesting, unique way. Do you want to explain what we do? Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so there's a group of us, and basically, at a certain moment in the early evening, a bell is rung. One of us will say, It is time for the bee. It is time to be. And then we will get as much of a quorum from this text group together. And someone will say in three separate messages, ready, set, go, and then we will race uh, to complete the New York Times spelling bee puzzle to genius as fast as humanly possible. Uh, There are no real rules beyond that other than obviously uh, everyone uh, is on their honor uh, in how they play, but uh, there is a social norm uh, not enforced and actually occasionally broken uh, by uh, Lee, which is <laughs> uh, uh, you should say when you've gotten the pangram. The pangram is the biggest w- is the is the big word that you're looking for in this puzzle. That not uses all of the letters on it. Use all the letters. You use all the letters. You get the pangram. It is a ferocious competition. All right. It is. There's a lot of bad sportsmanship. Really bad. Sportsmanship. There's a lot of. Really bad sportsmanship. There is a lot of hostility at the uh, end but there's of it. Also, you, a lot of love.
0: There, there is a lot of love at the end of it. You have to screenshot evidence that you, in fact,
2: reached genius level, and the first person yeah, to see, that screenshot is how you win. it. And actually, there's, you know, the screenshot moment is a very delicate moment. You have to capture the screenshot and send it as quickly as possible. There have been some photo finishes.
0: Honestly, I feel like you've been involved in every photo finish. I will say that I actually only compete. Maybe once every six weeks because I am so much better than all of you, that it's almost so, unfair.
2: So <laughs> it is um it is a little bit like uh um uh like pee tennis. Yes. And then every once in a while uh Emily comes in like Serena Williams and just destroys and she was winning so often that um out of uh, grace. I don't know in a spe- out of grace. Yeah, I would call it that. It would that's the word. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure Grace. Uh she does not always compete because it um it isn't really a competition when Emily plays. Uh it is a bloodbath.
0: Well, I just want to I want everyone to have fun, but I really like participating in the the social aspect of it i mean i've never felt less cool than explaining coach. this. yes i agree with that i've, <laughs> I've honestly never felt like m- so much of a loser explaining this to other people but it's really fun and i highly suggest everyone get on their their own spelling bee journey it's been a This is
2: the first time I've ever talked about it out loud. And it's, it's actually really um, embarrassing. Honestly, pretty humiliating.
0: <laughs> I'm actually really, I'm like sweating. I've never felt worse about myself. But it's really, it's a daily highlight for me, even though I'm not playing most days. Uh, it's a real treat. I feel like, um, wrongly, most people will not want to hear about this competition, but will want to hear about <laughs> another competition happening across the country. Should we pivot to talk about the election? Sure, Okay. sure, okay. that makes sense. I that feel makes like sense. that's maybe more broadly appealing to people. <laughs> um, do you want to hear something crazy? This is, okay. this is personal and election-related. So my parents, wow. my whole family lives in the suburbs of Philadelphia, which happens to be a very prime voting location in this year' election, in most presidential elections, but very important this year. So my parents went on Tuesday afternoon at 4.30 local time to vote and they live in a pretty small little town within the Philadelphia suburbs, so it's just one little small polling place at like, I'm pretty sure it's at like a women's center or like a community center, something small. 4.30, so not even at the end of a work day, right? They mm-hmm. said that there were 100 people waiting to either vote or pick up their ballot on three, exactly three weeks before election day in this very pivotal area of voters before the end of a work day, hundred people in line. It was, it's shocking to me and in a very exciting way.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that um, have been waiting for the opportunity to vote in this election for four years and when you've been waiting so long to do something so important, you don't want to wait one minute longer than you have to.
0: Mm. It's true. It's true. I mean, when I, I want to talk about Vote Saves America because I think that this ties into that really well. When, I saw the numbers for what you guys have been doing, I actually thought, I mean, I thought that there were commas in the wrong places when I first <laughs> read them. I literally was like, this this has to be a typo because both in, in the numbers that you're fundraising and also the, the number of people you're getting to volunteer and to register to vote – I, I, it was so staggering to me that I thought that there was a mistake. So can you just explain what Vote Save America is? And then we can talk about these numbers and maybe if I read the numbers wrong.
2: Yeah. So, uh, um, so Vote Save America. So, uh, you know, I, along with John Favreau and Tommy Vitor, we started Crooked Media, which is a progressive uh, network and podcast company. And our the core idea when we started was that, you know, Trump was a crisis, but he was also a symptom uh, and the symptom was uh, of a broken political culture, a broken media culture around politics. Uh, brokenness in our society generally in which so much of what we hear every single day, so much of the news, uh, so much of the of the noise that's pumped out uh, treats people less like um, participants in democracy and more like cynical observers. Everything is treated like a game that we're watching, not a game that you're playing. And... So we started with Pod Save America, which which was all about having a conversation about politics that reminded people of their agency, that they could be frustrated, they could be angry, they could be scared, but they had power. And the question we heard we started doing these live shows. We'd, we'd see it on Twitter. We see it everywhere. It was okay, great. Like, but we want to know what's the best way to help. Like, we we're here. We're paying attention. We're paying attention like never before. We feel guilty that we weren't doing enough earlier. We feel we feel out of control. We feel disenfranchised. Uh, what do we do to get in the fight? And so we started Vote Save America, and basically uh, it is a kind of one stop shop where you can. Uh, register to vote. You can check to see if you're registered to make sure your registration is still active because there are so many places where people can, uh, where there are errors, where names are purged from the polls, etc. You can register to vote. Uh, You can um, fill out your ballot. We have a ballot tool where you can actually kind of fill out your ballot so you know what's on there uh, in advance, kind of a ballot guide to walk you through uh, um, what you'll see on your real ballot. And there's a A way to make a plan to vote. So, uh, you know, where to go, how to apply for an absentee ballot, what to do if your ballot doesn't show up, all the little problems that can pop up. So, it's a process for taking you through voting from beginning to end, but it's also a, a platform for activism. So, you can go there and you can sign up for a phone banking or text banking shift. You can go there and you can donate and you can you can go there and you can join a community of other people so that you can you know talk to others about uh, what it was like volunteering or what you're learning or what you're seeing, what you're hoping for so that you can commiserate with other people who are uh, in the fight with you. Um, so uh, that was the idea through Vote Save America. Um, Hundreds of thousands of people have checked their registration. We've registered uh, over fifty thousand, and maybe sixty thousand. I, I the numbers are changing, but we were able to register fifty thousand people, which is a huge number. Mm. Uh, and then through our Adopt a State program, where you know, one question we heard over and over again is like, I live in a blue state. I live in a red state. You know, we have a lot of listeners in California and New York. And they're like, well, I want to be involved in the presidential election or I want to be involved in a close Senate race. Uh, What's a way to help? And so we created something called Adopt-A-State where you could pick a swing state, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, and you could adopt that state. And we would send you weekly kind of steps you could take to help win in your adopted state. That was something we were going to do before coronavirus, but it became even more important after because people were looking for a way to help from their couches, from their homes. So um, that's been a really important resource. But through that program alone, we signed up 300,000 volunteers, which is just a massive number. And I don't, you know, I'm obviously incredibly proud of Vote Save America, but it really speaks to the amount of enthusiasm out there. And what we found was I think what we found like since the beginning of Crooked Media is that there really just was this unmet need. There was this missing little connection between enthusiasm, energy, a desire to be involved and a a place, a portal where people could go and just find out super quickly, really easily what they could do to help right now. I think, you know, right now, by the time you hear this on VoteSaveAmerica.com, you can go there, you click volunteer and we'll just show you there. Here are six states. Click one of those states. Here's a way you can help. Right at this moment. Mm. So, there are ways to volunteer. Uh, And then finally, it's been a a fundraising portal. And our promise to people has been from the beginning like, we will do our best to point you to the places where your money can make the biggest difference. So, Mm. we started a Senate fund to target the most competitive Senate races. And we were able to raise, uh, I think, $32 million at this point for those. You know the number has shifted because we we go to where the resources are most needed. But about 14 Senate races, competitive Senate races, to get you know sometimes two million dollars, sometimes more into these races where that money is a huge, huge amount and can make a difference in the home stretch. We've done a housekeeping fund which basically targets. Uh, uh roughly a dozen house races where right now the money is needed, and you know that if you donate to that fund it's going to go to the tightest races, not just tight races but races where the money will go the furthest We're doing the same thing with something called our our fuck Jerry mandaring fund little'll play on fuck Jerry mandaring <laughs> uh, and that goes to local races so right now that money is going to incredibly close competitive races in Texas because just you know a, a, an influx of money into a legislative a state legislative race in a place like texas can make all the difference and if we flip the texas legislature we are able to redraw the maps after the census is done to make sure we can kind of put an end or reduce partisan gerrymandering across the country so these are the kind of things we've been doing it's a portal about voting it's a place it's a it's a it's a it's a place where you can find ways to volunteer right now and it's a place where you can donate and know that your money will go the furthest and um we're incredibly proud of it because uh we've been amazed by the response.
0: You know, I'm I'm both amazed and not amazed. I'm amazed because I'm your friend and I think that everything is really important at democracy and that you that you helped organize this is incredible to me. But I'm not amazed because I know that there's so much anxiety and so much enthusiasm around this and I always say that the luckiest part of my job is that I have a voice to be able to channel my own anxiety my own enthusiasm. But most people, I think, have felt voiceless, particularly over the last five years when there's so many scary things and there's so many feelings and there's so many things that people want to channel, channel, but they don't necessarily know how to channel them and they don't necessarily have an outlet or an organized way to do that. And that's so obviously what is happening here that you have given people a way to channel all of the things that they've been thinking and feeling in a really clear, organized way. Let me just read through some of the numbers because they, again, I really thought that they were a mistake. So <laughs> they're not. They're, they're not. They're real. So they're real. this year in 2020, you guys, as of early this week, it may have changed by the time this, this airs, but early this week, you guys have raised $38.8 million. You have registered to vote nearly 60,000 people. You've had 341,000 people verify that they are registered to vote. You've recruited 284,000 people to volunteer through this election cycle. Through your Get Mitch or Die Trying Fund, which just supports key races needed to flip the Senate and remove Mitch McConnell from his position as majority leader, you've raised $29 million. $27 million of those dollars came in the last two weeks of September alone. The numbers are crazy, and they make me feel like you should maybe start a cult or something. Like what you're doing. I thought about that. It's Well, I feel like we could start with the B and build from there.
2: What? Yeah, and look, I should also say, I shall say like, you you know, John, Tommy and I, you know, we started with a podcast and we really didn't, you know, we didn't have like, we didn't know how to start a media company. We didn't know how to start something like Vote Save America, but we were really fortunate that we were able to, kind of put together a team, uh, you know, the you know, Crooked is led by a woman named Sarah Wick, uh, who's done an incredibly incredible job kind of taking the energy around Pod Save America and some of other shows and kind of using that to, to expand our audience, to, to launch new and more diverse shows, to, to kind of build a, a sustainable uh, media company, which is, I think, one of the goals. And then for Vote Save America, Tanya Sominator, who is a uh, kind of a digital... Um, a, a digital expert at the White House under President Obama came on and she was instrumental in figuring out how to translate um, listeners and the energy that was out there into this kind of act- activism. So the thing that I, one of the things I'm most proud of, and I know John and Tommy feel the same way, it's, is that we were able to kind of build this incredible team uh, to help us figure out how to do this and to kind of lead these efforts.
0: Mm. So what are you and the rest of your team, if you were to say to people, these are the most important things to do in the last three weeks of this election cycle. What are those things? What should we all be doing? What should we all be donating to? Not me, but <laughs> others who don't have ethical considerations. Um, what should they be reading? What should they be looking yeah. out for?
2: So I think it's a couple things. I think if you can donate... There are places still where your dollars are really useful. You know, we just did a quick push for Gary Peters, who's in a tough race in Michigan. Uh, we, you know, Gary can. We got to get Gary's going to close. But you know, helping to make sure we keep that seat in the Senate in Michigan is one of the ways we can make sure we win the Senate. But we'll be pointing to different places where your dollars can go the furthest. We're still raising for the gerrymandering fund, which is about those about those flippable races. And the, and you know, the cool thing about donating to local races is the dollars make a huge, huge difference. Mm. You know, just like we, we, we focused on a few key races and that money all of a sudden, you know, dwarfs anything that they were able to raise for months before, because all of a sudden there's this national spotlight, which I think is really important showing people why, you know, these things, uh, trickle up. You win a, you win a a legislative race. All of a sudden you flip the legislature. you're, You're drawing better congressional districts. All of a sudden you're winning house seats. That's that's how you build a sustainable House majority. So we'll be pointing to things that you can donate to at Vote Save America. Um, then there is activism and volunteering. There are tons of ways you can help right now. There are people we need to call that just need to be you know, rem- you know know reminded to vote, make sure they have a plan to vote, make sure their ballot came. If their ballot didn't come, giving them help for what to do. Um, the other thing that we have found, so we did a a poll with Change Research. So Crooked and Change Research did this poll together, and it was of, I believe, uh, I may have the numbers wrong, but off the top of my head, I think it was around 3,000 marginal voters. These are people who uh, perhaps were first-time voters in 2016 uh, or didn't vote in 2016, or they voted in 2016, not 2018. Some of them are Obama-Trump people. Some of them are undecided, not between Obama and Trump, but or, or just undecided about whether to vote at all. And what was striking is, they all have opinions about Trump. Mm. Lots. Everybody's got an opinion about Donald Trump, and not a lot of people are fans. We all know that. We've been in this mess for four years. But what was really striking is, uh, like, the most common response when we asked people what they heard about Joe Biden was nothing. And I know that that's hard to believe. If you're listening to this, it means you're probably paying attention. But there are a lot of people out there that are really open to voting for Joe Biden, but they really don't, they don't come to it with a lot of the... Um, Kind of partisan expectations that you may come to it with. They don't have a lot of information. Uh They don't. Uh, they're not kind of consuming the news, or the news is in some way kind of outside, like just sort of outside of their experience. And what we found in that poll, which I think was actually, you know, it's a it's a it's a mix of heartening and and the opposite of heartening.
0: But I guess disheartening would be the, be the disheartening. Word. <laughs> that's the word. See, that's why you win the B. There you go.
2: That's why you win the beat. You always a, have, to think, think, you have to I think... I was a writer. I know of, it's disheartening.
0: He's exactly right. Okay. I know that the word is disheartening. Sure. You just have to add every letter in there, John. You have to add every prefix, every suffix, all of them.
2: <laughs> but anyway... um that like pro-biden messages like basically here's biden's plan for healthcare. you know here's how he would expand health care here's how trump would cut health care here's how biden would cut taxes for middle class while here's how trump's plan is to raise taxes for uh, uh, cut taxes for the wealthy you know joe Biden has a plan to create jobs around clean energy donald trump believes uh, climate change is a hoax. These kind of simple core messages are actually really persuasive because there's people that just haven't heard them yet. So so what that argues for is, yeah, phone bank, text bank, you know, be involved, go to Votes of America, take on a shift if you haven't done it, Talk, you haven't done it before and you care, you know, stop doom scrolling, you really can help. But what you can do that's really important that not enough people do, I'm talking about myself, I don't do this enough, share pro-Biden messages with your network. Mm. Tell people why you're voting for Joe Biden. People have made up their minds on Donald Trump. They think he sucks. But there's a lot of people out there that really do, uh, that really are receptive to a message, especially from people in their own lives, about the reasons, specific policy reasons, specific personal reasons, that they're pulling the lever for Joe Biden. And that's something everybody can do on Facebook. That's something everybody can do with their family.
0: That's a great point, because our president has sucked up every bit of oxygen in The room in the cable news sphere on Twitter, in our conversations about politics at our dinner tables. And all of those conversations are, well, I'm going to phrase it differently. None of those conversations are substantive, right? They're all personality driven. They're all gossip driven. They're all, did you see this latest insane thing? None of them have to do with policy. And most of that is because our president has no policy. He has no core values. He has no agenda. It is all personality based, but that doesn't mean that his opponent is that way. And I, I, in fact, you almost forget that normal politics is actually about policy and that that's how, how it should be. And what, what matters to most people, you forget that most people are not really casting their vote based on what the president tweets about, that most people care about healthcare, climate change, Economic reforms, stimulus packages—most people care about those things, but those are the things that are talked about least on the on the news platforms and on social media and all the the ways that people talk about this election.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I think what you said—that you said normal politics—and I think that that's a really important part of what's happening. You know, I talked I, I talked to um, Senator Brian Schatz on a podcast a week or two ago. Name and drop this sort of the question. I name drop. Yeah, watch your feet. <laughs> Senators' names are dropping, Uh, but but um, (laughs) dear dear friend, (laughs) uh, uh, I asked him. I was I said, you know, there's this strange part of this election, which is, poll after poll shows that the most the best issues for Democrats to fight on, right, are kind of core economic issues. It's it's uh, people need relief from this pandemic and this financial crisis. And Trump has refused to act, but Joe Biden has a plan. It's, you know, the Affordable Care Act should be expanded and supported, not repealed. And we should make sure pre-existing conditions remain covered. Uh, and we should stop uh, uh, what the Trump administration is trying to do, which is uh, get the law thrown out and get 20 minute, t- which would put 20 million people in a position of losing their health care, not to mention coverage for pre-existing conditions. That these kind of core economic issues, normal politics, right, is where Democrats have the best hope of picking up some of these votes that, that we need. And yet the campaign itself, what's on the news, what what is driving the conversation is everything but normal politics. And that's not the fault of the press. That's that's the reality of our situation. I, I sincerely believe that there is an anti-democratic assault on, uh, on our institutions right now that Donald Trump is running a you know, a, a campaign against voting, to delegitimize voting and to soak chaos, to make it possible for him either to slink away without accepting defeat or muddle the results enough to remain in power, which is something I am quite, quite hopeful and sure that if everybody votes, we can stop, uh, that he is, you know, talking about prosecuting uh, his political rivals. He is spreading misinformation about coronavirus. He is spreading incredibly... Uh, destructive conspiracy theories right now about you know everything from uh, the Obama administration to the raid that took out Osama bin Laden just noise and filth and QAnon bullshit and just just these sort of kind of these these sort of impulses that he have which are basically about everything outside of normal politics and so you think about what's happening in the election and it's really a fight between uh, democratic politics. Uh, versus, uh, you know, this sort of right-wing propaganda and this cultural rot, and yet, you know, we have to fight. <laughs> it's this strange thing where, even as we know that this is a fight—not ju- not a race inside of, but a race for democratic politics—the most effective strategy for winning that fight may just be to fight a completely ordinary campaign. Mm. And my, what I, what I was saying to, 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 and and that's you know, and, and what Senator Schatz was saying was basically. Look, people are hurting. They they need answers for 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 you know their material challenges right now. They're in a, a financial crisis right now. They're worried about their health care right now. But I do think it's worth all of us thinking about if we can get to the other side of this election. And that's still a big if. Like those propaganda forces, those cultural forces of cultural rot, they're really strong. And, and Trump can still win. But if we can get to the other side of this thing, we need to start thinking more uh, openly. We have to have to talk more openly about what we do to kind of reaffirm our kind of core values around democracy itself like why are these values why are these sort of what are dismissed in a lot of punditry as like process why are these things not important to people anymore how do we revive those kinds of civic virtues because i think the decline of those virtues you know the spaces that have opened up the cracks that have opened up like that's the that's where trump snuck through mm.
1: this is inside the hive
2: the 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast, with expert analysis, no spin, no BS, just
1: trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz. And each week on Slate's Political Gabfest, Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news and the courts. Listen to the Political Gabfest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I want to talk about those cracks and about life on the other side, whether that's in four weeks or in four years. Um, but I I want to pick up on something you were talking about and you were talking about how how much the economy still matters to people. And it makes me feel like, I mean, in in every stretch of my imagination, I believed that the closing argument going into the end of this campaign would be about the economy, right? I was like 100% sure that Trump's two last closing arguments in this stretch of the campaign would be about the economy and about law and order. And I mean, partially because the law and order message has been drowned out by the fact that our president became a super spreader, an infected super spreader, (laughs) That sort of went away. But the economy is not the booming bastion that he had hoped it would be at this point. Is it just impossible for any other closing argument to stick other than coronavirus at this point in the, in the last few weeks of this campaign? Yeah, I mean, yes.
2: I think that that was always going to, you know, this was always going to be central. I think it became the central facet of the campaign when Trump... Recklessly allowed the White House to become a uh, super spreader Mm -hmm. hotspot. So that made his job more difficult. Um, You know, the truth is Trump still has some strength on the economy. There are still polls that show consistently that people view him as someone who understands how to create jobs. They continue to view his business acumen as a strength. Like, you know, I don't care how many times we've debunked that or talked about it um, as being kind of the creation of reality television. It's a myth that has become real for a lot of people. And, you know, the, the efforts to dissuade them of it is not work. So right now he still has strength on the economy. And it's interesting, right, because everyone recognizes that Trump failed on the pandemic. He didn't cause the pandemic, but he failed to respond to it appropriately, honestly, seriously, effectively, that that has helped create a deep, deep economic hole. Uh, And yet they still recognize Trump as somebody who is equipped to get us out of that hole. So that is the best issue he has. Mm. However, he does real damage uh, when he fails to take the virus seriously, because I think the best argument you see from Joe Biden, you know, he said it in a speech yesterday. You know, you see these people at the White House not taking the virus seriously. You see them, uh, you know hugging each other, getting close to each other, not wearing masks. When was the last time you got to hug your grandchild? Mm. When was the last time you got to do uh, these wonderful parts of life that that you've been deprived of? I think that's really important. I think it makes the human argument. And then at the same time, what Biden has said from the beginning, I think is also his most effective message, which is we will not be able to successfully bring the economy back until we take the virus seriously. Trump still will not do that. That is why he must go. Um, So I think that's the way you sort of thread the needle there.
0: Those are exactly the notes that I think the Biden campaign is striking and striking so well. I feel like in the last week, those closing arguments have been really strong from his side and they have sort of hit a stride. And I think that they've hit a note that resonates for people and they've been really consistent about them. The closing arguments, I've made a list of some of the closing arguments that the Trump campaign or that our president has made over the last few weeks. And I just want to get your take (laughs) on each one of them. Sure. Um, I will start Exciting. with the president's explanation that he heroically got COVID nineteen so that he could better understand it for people. That it was a choice he made, and that he is a hero for having done it. What's your read?
2: Uh, Dan Pfeiffer, one of our Pod Save America co-hosts, um, <laughs> uh, I think, said it well when he said, um, "This is like a pilot." Advertising that he's the pilot you should hire because he's the only one who's crashed. Um, perfect. Uh, no, I don't think that that's a particularly resonant message, and I think everybody recognizes that um, Trump was incredibly reckless in his conduct and created the conditions for not just his own <laughs> uh, COVID positive diagnosis, but for one that's spread through the nation's capital. I mean, right now we have we had COVID positive. Mike Lee, without a mask in the Senate hearing room. We have COVID curious Lindsey Graham refusing <laughs> to announce his tests. Uh, so we have Tom Why won't Tillis he take a test? doing the same thing.
0: Why do you uh, not take a test if you're Lindsey Graham? Just take a test.
2: Well, first of all, we don't know that he hasn't right. He, there's been no public test. We sure. don't know that he hasn't had a a diagnosis. We just don't know. I think he, I think he views this hearing uh, as. Um, You know, it's incredibly reckless and selfish and narcissistic. But one thing we know about Lindsey Graham is this Senate seat is his whole life. He is defined by it. He will do anything to keep it. He doesn't know who he is outside of it. And it propels all of his conduct from from kind of uh, going from being honest about Donald Trump to becoming one of his top supplicants to announcing to the world hold me to my words if I ever go back on my promise not to confirm injustice in a in an election year to becoming the chief cheerleader for that uh, nomination. I think that he is someone motivated entirely by you know it's funny we say power and I do think it is about power but I think it's even less it's I don't I think it's even more primitive it's it's prestige it's mm. the only way he identifies it's it's where he, it's 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 if he is not a senator, he doesn't know who he is, and everything is subsumed by that important mission of of maintaining that role.
0: When you put it that way, it seems even more pathetic than it previously did, and I really didn't think that it could get much lower. So, <laughs> thank it's, you. It's pathetic. It it's really pathetic. is pathetic. It is. It's what it is. Um, speaking of pathetic, I have another closing argument coming from our president. Okay. Um, I'm curious what you think about the reporting from the New York Times over the weekend for Maggie Haberman that the president really strongly considered leaving the hospital with a Superman t shirt on underneath his regular president clothes to mm-hmm. unveil the Superman logo as a show of force and strength to the American people.
2: So, uh,. <laughs> So here's what I think about this. I think I think two things. One, this was going to be like his Willy Wonka moment. And one thing I always remember is, so Gene Wilder demanded that be part of the film. He demanded that he walk out with a cane and then fall down and jump back up. And the reason he wanted to do that was not because he wanted his character to show how strong he was. He wanted to do that because he thought once you do that, no one will ever know if this person is telling the truth ever again. Mm. So I find it to be an uh, oddly uh, fitting metaphor that Donald Trump wanted to embrace. That's one note on that. The other piece of this is, I think if you've overcome an illness and you're proud, right, and your family is going to have a a celebration for you, uh, you know, I think that's sweet. If you want to do a funny little moment with your family where you pull open your shirt and you're wearing a a Superman t shirt under there. I think that that could be almost sweet. You know, I get it. However, you don't do that when not only did you overcome an illness, but your recklessness almost killed a bunch of people like chris christie was in the hospital for a full week seems like he was in a pretty bad way a lot of people got sick a lot of families and children were put at risk we still don't know the full cost the full toll of donald trump's recklessness so this is not about somebody showing how strong they are this is about a drunk driver who hit a school bus (laughs) wearing a superman t-shirt after they leave the hospital have some fucking shame
0: well Yes to all of that. I also want to just note that the I don't believe in all of my reporting on the Trump family that the Trump family has sweet funny little moments like that together in private. That's I don't just think so either. I just I just don't think that that's what happens there. I one of the more disturbing aspects of this and there are many to me is the idea of President Trump in a t-shirt period, let alone a Superman t-shirt. I just I I really can't picture it i guess maybe a golf shirt he wears sometimes but the idea of him in like a logo t-shirt just doesn't totally sit well (laughs) yeah i agree
1: (laughs) this is inside the hive i'm david remnick host of the new yorker radio hour there's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: The last closing argument that I want to run by you that I think is the most serious and and certainly is the one that's getting the most oxygen is about... Uh, Joe Biden court packing and it's the one Mm -hmm. that seems to be the thing that reporters just can't talk about enough when it comes to Joe Biden a do you think it's effective for the Trump campaign and B it seems like Joe Biden earlier this week landed on an answer for it I'm wondering if you think that this was a good answer if you think he still has work to do where where are we on the court packing issue
2: Wait, so are you going the answer race that they're the ones that are court packing? Yes, is that what exactly. you're referring to? Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's fine. I, You know, look, I, I don't think, you know, Mike Pence in the debate made this point about, oh, you know, plagiarizing. Like, uh, you know, this race is not being fought on issues like court packing, procedural process questions like that, norm questions like that. Look, if we were going to fight this campaign on norms and institutions and preserving uh, um the function as it currently exists of, say, the courts, like the the election would sound and look very, very different already. Um, I think his answer is fine. I think I understand why they're being asked. I think it has been a bit of a shifty answer up until then. And we know why they don't want to answer it, right? That, that it's um like we get the politics of it. You say you're You say you want to do it, all of a sudden it's a cudgel against uh, uh, Democrats. You say you're against it. It's a a kind of tacit acceptance of the nomination. Um, I think the probable, the reality of it is that Joe Biden's, of course, Joe Biden is an institutionalist. He's a consensus builder and an institutionalist. Of course, he's reluctant uh, to embrace the idea of adding seats to the Supreme Court to make up for kind of conservative rule and the successful conservative project to take over the courts over the past four decades. That said, I do find it interesting that this has become a cudgel for Republicans against Joe Biden. When in the debate, Mike Pence was asked point blank, what do you want to happen after Roe v. Wade? If Roe v. Wade is overturned by a conservative Supreme court. And he completely dodged the question when, uh, We've been watching for four decades as they've been fighting tooth and nail to get to the point where Roe versus Wade can be thrown out and they can criminalize abortion. That is the goal. That is the stated goal. It is only not the stated goal during these kinds of nomination fights. So it's interesting to me that one hypothetical follows Joe Biden around about conceivably in the future adding seats to the supreme court so that the rulings can be more favorable when another hypothetical which is hey this thing you're trying to do what happens if you succeed is not something that follows mike pence around i think it speaks to like you know we talk a lot about liberal bias and there absolutely is a something like there is a difference in the way Mainstream news treats liberals and treats conservatives, but it's not a bias in favor of liberals. It is, a, it is an unspoken subconscious, <laughs> at times, treatment of Democrats as protagonists and Republicans as antagonists. And that doesn't always work for the Democrats' favor mm. because they're held to a much higher standard. They are they are expected to behave like we'd want somebody on our team to behave, and, and instead of instead of judging both uh, both sides uh, the same way and holding them to the same standard, so uh, that is very frustrating to me. That said, um, uh, like I think that that answer about Republicans being the 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 core Packers is a good one. I think it sends the right message, and um, my assumption is that this is not going to be. Central to this race for the final two weeks.
0: Sure, I mean it's not central to this race because we're in sort of a an extra political period. I think it right. just it just as we talked about it's it's just not politics as normal, and it m- leads me back to what you sort of poked at earlier about what happens post Trump, whenever that may be. Let's let's for the sake of argument, though, as a as a true Realist turned pessimist. I I don't know that that's going to happen in a few weeks. But but let's assume there's a Biden presidency in the next few weeks on the horizon. What happens to Senate Republicans? What happens to congressional Republicans? Are they held accountable for the fact that they carried this president's water for the last four years? Are they facing the music or does it just... Exists like nothing ever happened, and, it, and it's Washington as usual. Huh.
2: Yeah, look, I, you know, if history is any guide, there will be an incredible look. I, and I hope, I hope we live in this world, right? This is the ideal scenario, and we have to do everything we can in the next two weeks, and we shouldn't take it for granted. All caveats aside, but I'll I'll go there with you, having now done those caveats. Sure, um, I like. I'll just be honest. Like, even as you ask that question, I think. Uh, this is my this is sort of my response to it. And I'll just be honest in that, like, I'm I'm thinking about this out loud. Like, I have not just in how I've been thinking about life after this, I've been not thinking about it in terms of accountability for the Republicans who went along with what Trump did. Mm. I care less about accountability, honestly especially because I have little hope for it, and more about incentives for the future. And so I think when we talk about will we hold Republicans accountable for their support for Trump, I think another way to think about that is will we address the broken, ugly, anti-democratic incentives that led a bunch of these Republicans to decide it was in their craven, personal, amoral interest to embrace somebody like Trump? I think that matters for for Congress, and 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 it matters for what Republicans do. It also matters because there's a lot of ambitious, craven people watching, right? The Josh Hollies, the Tom Cottons, the Ted Cruz's of the world—they uh, are paying attention. And so, to me, you know, we have to look at all of these forces, right? Right-wing propaganda and the and the role that it plays, the the failure of Facebook to address the spreading of of, of misinformation and hateful rhetoric, and and. Uh, kind of devices, radicalizing um, material on their platform. Same goes for YouTube, same goes for Twitter. Uh, we have to think about all of these problems because to me, you know, I want us to... We have to do a little bit of looking back. We have to make sure that in an effort to, to sort of move beyond what happened with Trump, we don't forget to do the hard work of getting to the bottom of the crimes and the malfeasance, because the only by actually doing that work will we understand the guardrails we need to put in place to prevent the kind of abuses we've been through from happening all over again. Because if we don't put up those guardrails, they just will happen again. What are those guardrails? Um, and, well, so, you know, I, I, you know, there's a, the the Democrats have a proposal, um, you know, I don't consider myself an expert in it, but it's like you look at the pardon power. right? There needs to be more transparency around the pardon power. There needs to be more firm dividing lines between the president and the Department of Justice. There needs to be uh, more disclosure, more anti-corruption measures that protect us from what Donald Trump has done. There needs to be uh, more to uh, make sure that when the president is engaging with foreign uh, Leaders and foreign adversaries that we have a better understanding of their personal financial interests. There's a host of things that I don't feel expert in that need to happen. Um, And then, you know, beyond that, like we need to talk about how do we put teeth behind congressional subpoenas again? How Mm -hmm. do we make that a norm? How do we make that an expectation? You know, by the time we got to the point where all of these. Trump administration officials were rejecting congressional subpoenas. It's too late to say, all right, we're putting in a cell and we're sending <laughs> we're sending in the sergeant at arms. That that we have to create an expectation and understanding that these subpoenas will be enforced, that they carry the force of law and that that is serious. Like we have to do a bunch of different things. I also think we need to return some prerogatives back to Congress. We need to devolve some of the accrued authority that has been ceded from Congress to the White House, because one thing we have seen, and by the way, from like the State Department and the Department of Justice and elsewhere in the government to the White House, because because the presidency is just too powerful. It is too powerful a position. And it was too easy for someone like Trump as undisciplined and narcissistic uh, and foolish as he can be to run roughshod over what were kind of norms in place because of shame and a sense of integrity that once absent uh, no longer controlled him
0: mm. i feel like there are a whole lot of amens that i can hear coming <laughs> echoing back after listening to that i think you've given a playbook for what to expect in the next couple of weeks and then what to expect in in what may be the the months and even years after this coming election, what we should hope for in the ideal circumstance. I have one last question for you. And this one Mm -hmm. comes from a little bird in my house who urged me to dig way back in your personal archives. Uh, It struck me. So I think six years ago, you worked in Hollywood on a little television idea. The Uh plot of which was based on, quote, an unraveling United States of America when partisan division comes to a head on the day of a presidential election, what starts off as a normal Tuesday, ends with a season on the brink of civil war. Unquote. So it seems like you're an oracle who maybe predicted what we're going to face on November 3rd. Given your prediction powers that you may be a little bit psychic, what are you expecting to wake up to on November 4th and the weeks beyond that.
2: Uh so yeah, look, I had <laughs> I don't think look, I don't think you had to be a um a soothsayer to understand that parts of our politics were unraveling before our eyes. That's I also will tell you I'm not in I don't want to make any predictions. I think we all got ourselves in trouble by uh worrying a little bit too much about what would happen instead of what should happen in the run up to 2016. I love that uh, answer. That's it. That said, I think our job—I'm literally just going to dodge this question. I'm just going to say, here's the thing. You're a politician, aren't you? Absolutely. Our job over the next—it is 20 days away. This is coming on Friday for the next two weeks and three days is to do everything we can to make sure that we don't wake up in a situation in which the votes are close enough that Donald Trump is able to sow enough chaos and sow enough fear— uh, to throw the results into doubt, I believe that, that is possible. You know, one of the tricks Donald Trump is trying to uh, perform is is presenting himself as having a great deal of power and authority over the process. He doesn't have that. We are a we have a federal system. Elections are run locally. They are run by the states. State law will determine who has won these races. Donald Trump can't delegitimize this election without our consent, and Donald Trump cannot prevent people from voting without their consent. So we have two weeks, and in those two weeks, our job, look, here's what I think is kind of exciting about this. If you want to find an optimistic way to think about Give this. Give me the silver lining. We talk about, we talk about every election, oh, you know, your vote counts, your vote counts, your vote counts, you need to make your voice heard. And that's, of course, it's always true. Of course, it's always true that these elections can be close. Florida came down to 500 votes. Your vote can make the difference. Getting a bunch of people in your life to vote can mean the difference. We saw, a, we saw the entire Virginia legislature turn on a coin toss uh, because elections can be that close. But in this election, every vote counts in a different way, because this election isn't just about getting to 50 percent plus one vote, every vote above 50 percent is a rebuke of anti-democratic politics, and it's a rebuke of an effort to delegitimize our elections, to throw those elections into doubt. It is a vote against Trumpism, and every single vote above 50% matters. This could still be close. This could still come down to the wire. There may be votes out there that make the difference between winning or losing the electoral college. That is absolutely true. But even, you know, you know, go to sleep every night like the polls are right. Get a good night's sleep. Wake up like they're wrong. Wake up like we're down one point. But it doesn't matter. Every mm. single vote that we get over 50 percent is a vote that makes it harder for Donald Trump's anti-democratic movement to succeed. And the the only thing <laughs> in the end, like, look, Joe Biden will not solve every problem. The Democrats will not solve every problem. But the only hope we have of a return to democratic politics where anyone out there who cares about uh, the ability of ordinary people to come together to put pressure on their leaders to make changes in their community. The core idea of a democratic society, the only way that we can preserve that is by winning and winning resoundingly on November 3rd. And I just hope we don't... And if we do that work, if we do that, then I do not we don't have to worry about the chaos that Donald Trump wants to so We don't have to worry about worst-case scenarios.
0: I feel like you just gave me a silver lining and then some. I feel... Inspired, I feel very grateful for you making me feel some hope today. I feel very grateful for your time. I'm so glad you came by. And for, for your efforts, I'm going to sit out of the bee today and allow you a better wow. chance of winning.
2: Well, thank you, Emily. Uh, I'm very grateful for the chance to talk to you. I think I just heard a dog in the background. She's
0: Both dogs have been circling me this whole time. They hear your voice. They, you know how obsessed <laughs> they are with you. But they're looking for my attention.
2: Um, uh can't wait to see you in the Bee, you know? Can't
0: wait. Thank you again. Thank you to my guest, John Lovett, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagen. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their wonderful production work. And of course, thanks to our sponsors. Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We will see you right here next week.